Welcome back to the Title IX College Sports Conversations. We are now in episode two, and I am so thrilled to be able to welcome in Jackie McWilliams, who is the first Black woman ever to sit at the commissioner's post in Division I, Division II, or Division Three in now at the Central Intercollegiate Athletics Association. Jackie, thanks so much for being with us. I know you've got a tr crazy travel schedule right now. I would imagine, so you're only, what, you're, you're in your mid fifties now, so you're only a little bit ahead of me. We didn't grow up in an era where we were like, oh, when I grow up, I wanna be a conference commissioner. <laughs> so how did this all come about how did the opportunity present itself were you proactive when you heard there was an opening did somebody come to you yeah you know that's a, a great question um and you've asked it differently for me to think about it differently and respond i i honestly believe my um exposure being an athlete in the ciaa and playing at hampton university and watching the women, um, they were not athletic directors. I think at the time we had one female AD back in the day and she was at St. Paul's College but had a real strength in the college. But I never even thought about, you know, athletics being a path and an opportunity. I knew I didn't want to coach, um, but I ended up coaching. Um, and part of that was the athletic director at Hampton who just retired, MEAC commissioner, Dr. Thomas at, um, yeah, he was at Hampton and then went to the MEAC encouraged me to consider taking a coaching job at Virginia Union um, and also an administrator job. So in, normally in small colleges, HBCUs, you, you have like multiple jobs. And that's what I saw the women on our campuses. And I'm like, I don't want to have that many jobs and work that hard. Um, but at the end of the day, I ended up doing that. So I think the influences and in, in the women and even the men that I saw around me, my coach encouraged me to get my master's in sports management. I wanted to be a sports psychologist, um, but ending up taking the pathway of going to Temple and getting my master's. And again, seeing great uh, athletic administrators and athletes and coaches at Temple and, um, and women, Tina Sloan Green was at Temple, started the Black Women's Sports Foundation there. I happened to be in that very first meeting of that conversations of first, um, and it's still going, you know, 20 plus years now. And so I, I just think giving that opportunity by Black men and Black women opening up the door for me to see a career in sport. And here I am. You know, going to the NCAA was a huge influence and opportunity of gaining the experience and preparing myself to be at one of the major and, and largest at one time, but the first HBCU conference in the country. And I couldn't have been more prepared than working at Morgan State, Norfolk State, Virginia Union, and then the NCAA and, and to bring all that together and to be here. I never thought I'd be the woman, uh, a commissioner and then the first, but I knew this was my dream job after working here and then going to the NCAA and wanting to come back to a conference that has so much impact on my life. Well, if you look at all of the skill sets that you've acquired over the years, both as an athlete and you were a multi-sport athlete at Hampton, worked as a coach, worked in administration, worked in compliance. Gee, that's not very important right now. <laughs> uh, you right. And, and overseeing basketball championships for D1 men's and women's for the NCAA. You have this vast plate of experience, but let's rewind to little Jackie growing up in Colorado. <laughs> Who were your sports influences? Were there particular athletes that you looked up to? Were, was your family encouraging you to play sports and multiple sports? 
Well, my dad was a, I was a military brat. So we moved every two to three years. So never found stability in one place from Germany to California. But my mom kept me pretty active in sports. So from baton twirling, I was a gymnast. I thought I'd be a a gymnast. Honestly, I wanted to go to the Olympics and I ran track, was a very good track athlete. I didn't get in organized sports until we moved back to Colorado. Um, and that's where I graduated from high school and had the most opportunity and the greatest opportunity to have coaches that were in that Colorado Springs. That's where the Olympic uh, training was taking place at the time. Um, my basketball coach, Mr. Mont coach Montel, who I'm still connected with, he was an official and would take me to the Olympic trials or at least the training sessions at the Olympic training center. My volleyball coach was, who was a um, black female, she was half Japanese and black. She actually encouraged me to play volleyball and she was an amazing coach and would take us, um, and it would be a small black of women of color playing the game um, and going to Denver and playing, but Flo Hyman, was like one of my, like, I wanted to go to USC or UCLA and play volleyball. I think, you know, watching the game and watching athletes um, excel was just amazing to me, how they use the sport um, to not just play in college, but they were doing so much more. Women's basketball at the time um, wasn't as prevalent. I remember when they had the women's professional team and it came out in those uniforms. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I ever want to wear that uniform, but I enjoyed having the opportunity to see the possibilities of the women's game grow. I learned watching the game from men's basketball how to advance my game because you didn't see women playing. And so I think the exposure between coaches um, that I had in high school and my mother encouraging me to play. She, was, she didn't get to play when she was younger, um, but definitely was extremely supportive um, in making sure that I was prepared to play. What I ate before I played, coming to all of my games, my dad was traveling constantly. So, but her support was instrumental in the coaches that I had growing up. And who would have thought that I could have used the game of basketball and volleyball to go to college all the way from Colorado to Hampton. They didn't even know who I was. I found them before they found me. Is that right? So what's the story behind that? And, and I wonder too, I, I know so many HBCU graduates who take an inordinate amount of pride in that choice because they could have played somewhere and they chose to go to a historically black college or university to be a part of that culture and be a part of that community. Yeah. And the alumni extensions yeah. from that are just so vital. It is. Um, you know, I my family's from the South. They're from Mississippi. Um, that's where I spent all my summers. Um, I have cousins and family who went to Jackson State or who who didn't go to Jackson State, but are Jackson State fans. Um, an aunt that went to Southern. My sister went to Alabama State. So we definitely have a legacy of HBCU. But, you know, growing up, I didn't know really what that meant. I knew Jackson State and Southern. I, knew, I didn't know about Hampton and all of the other, you know, 100 plus HBCUs. Um, I just happened to be fortunate to have assistant principal and also a teacher at my high school that were from the East Coast that told me, you know, let's talk about colleges. They actually pulled me out of class, Bonnie, pulled me out of class and said, where do you want to go? I had the opportunity to stay Midwest and had scholarship opportunities there. Um, but for me, I needed to be or wanted to be in a cultured environment where I thought, 
I could really thrive. And I've always grown up in diverse communities, right? Never all white, all black. I was a military kid that lived on bases um, that was always pretty diverse, but oftentimes I was the only one. Um, in my classrooms. There might be a few, um, you know, locals that were in the space, but oftentimes I was the only one. So the opportunity to go to Hampton after having the conversation with my principal, assistant principal, and it was really a few choices. She said Morgan State, which was in Baltimore. We talked about Howard that was in DC. We talked about Hampton that was in Hampton, Virginia by the water. I love the water, lived in California. And then we talked about Spelman in Atlanta. And the one that rang most to me was being by the water. And then we did, at the time we didn't have internet. So we couldn't look up. I mean, I actually was in the library looking up schools and encyclopedias trying to figure out where I could go to college. And Hampton um, called the basketball coach, Coach Sweat at the time. We won the national championship my freshman year. I couldn't have played or, or selected a better institution to go to that culturally connected me, gave me a sense of community and belonging and allow me to grow um, as a woman, a black woman, uh, and to learn my history way beyond that, more than I thought that I knew that would help me manage expectations now as a black woman, but help students and others who didn't go to HBCUs understand the value of, of the community that I work in. I was a Title IX baby. I did gymnastics at the University of Maryland, but it I would be lying if I said I knew all about Title IX when I was in college. It really didn't come mm -hmm. into focus for me until I got in our industry. Where was Title IX on your life timeline? Uh, you know, it probably the same when I got in the industry. But let me say this. I remember in high school, my volleyball coach, Shirley Diggs, who's still my mentor, she, I remember her fighting and having hard conversations with administration, particularly with the football coach. Um, haven't we all like she wasn't that, alone <laughs> you know like and getting gym time when it was raining um you know just simple things I'm just having access uniforms very different I mean even when I got to college at Hampton not that they didn't care about women's sports it was just a different focus um and I remember my coaches then pushing you know access and opportunity and I'm not sure I knew that was title nine I just knew that something wasn't fair and something had to be different um, and then when I start coaching at Virginia Union and working with Coach Battle, who gave me the opportunity to coach uh, volleyball, head volleyball coach, assistant basketball coach, compliance coordinator. and For the men's team. For the men's team. Yep. I did that one year. I had all these jobs and I'm like, I don't even know if that's equitable, but there was an opportunity sure. that I saw. So it was probably then when I was coaching and recognize that I was battling some of the same things I was battling as a student athlete and didn't know how to advocate for. And so my growth and learning was really, I was 23, 24, trying to understand everything about Title IX, trying to address issues on campus, you know, and hoping I didn't lose my job, like every woman in the world that was um, actually advocating to make sure that there was access and opportunity. But, you know, I, I worked for an amazing athletic director who allowed me to be a part of the strategic vision of women's sports at the time. Budgets were tight, small D2, um, but at least I was able to sit at the table to have the conversations. It wasn't ignored. Whether it happened quickly or not, the conversations were happening. And when I left the program, they hired a full-time volleyball coach. You know, they had a better budget. I mean, it's just, you know, it's good. So hopefully I left something behind. They actually put me in their hall of fame last year 
um, with the you know premise that I really hate changed the trajectory and the opportunities for women's sports at Virginia Union University. What would you consider your greatest impact when it comes to Title IX and the efforts that you've made toward reaching equity? Wow, there's a lot. Um, because for me, it's not just the sport. <laughs> it's not just being able to play. Um, the advocacy of, of having voice at the table um, is extremely important. Um, you know, it's often said, you know, there's not many of us around the table, women and even black women. Um, and so to have access and to be prepared to have voice at the table, serving as uh, chair of the Division II Management Council, being in the room at the Board of Governors, um, being elected to serve as the president of women leaders in college sports. Um, those to me have been important because when young girls and women, boys and men can see a woman that looks like me at the table, it gives them hope that that could be them too. So now you're trying to make me cry. <laughs> Not intentional. <laughs> but um, it gives them hope to see what I never thought that I could be. I was fortunate to be at an HBCU and watch a Laverne Sweat stand on the voting floor at the NCAA when we were all one organization, division one, two, and three, and how I admired that. I remember watching a Judith Sweet who I got to work for never in a lifetime where most women have admired her for the work that she's done and the fights that she's had um, in DC at the NCAA and everywhere to find equity and balance for all women and then to work with her and watch her silent kill um, and advocacy, to me, that was, it's still humbling to even say. And so I think any time that I've been able to work in the positions that I have been in, um, the platform is an incredible opportunity to advocate what I know is important, not just for women, but it's just important for men too. And I don't have a problem sharing that voice um, because if I can make a difference for one man and one woman, one girl, one boy, then to me, I'm, I'm doing what my mission is to serve every day, um, to create space for everyone who desires to be in that space. You sit, I think it's several years now, you've been on the NCAA's Gender Equity Task Force. So you have a direct line in to what's going on here and the conversations. Do you find, Jackie, that there are unique challenges when it comes to gender equity, specifically on HBCU campuses? Um, I think they're unique in a sense where, you know, on HBCU campuses, we're fighting for all equity. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're fighting for racial equity. You're, you're going double barrels here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're fighting on both sides. So you sit on the gender equity committee, I've been, I'm on that committee and I sat on the cultural diversity committee, right? And we're all wanting the same things, but we're talking differently. On the gender equity, we're talking about equity for all. We're talking about, but we know for all has been more prominent for white women than it has been for women of color. Then you get on the cultural side and you're talking about black men, black women, women of color, Asian, you know, Hispanic. So you're, it's all lumped in here. So you all want the same thing, but the focus and direction might be a little bit because it's more directed to the culture. It's more directed to 
the gender. And to me, we're all wanting the same things, but sometimes the people in the room um, don't always look like me on this side, right? And in this room, it doesn't look like them. So you're just trying to figure out how do you balance all of that? Because at the end of the day, you want equity for everyone who wants to participate, play, work in the industry, have access and opportunity. And it's not intentional that it's that way. It's just, it's just generational, right? That it's been built that way. And I think the gender equity committee and being a part of that and advocating and assuring that black women don't get left behind in the conversation is important. And they haven't. Like I'm working with some incredible, incredible leaders on that side that understand that. And then working on this side as well that we should be working collectively to ensure that neither one of us are left out, that we're all trying to work to the same end. The men's and women's CIAA basketball tournament that spent 15 years in Charlotte, recently moved to Baltimore. And this is a tournament that brings a huge economic windfall to whatever city it's in. And in, in doing my prep for this interview, <laughs> I know that you've worked really hard to create um, an equal stage for the women's tournament as much as the men's tournament. How has your experience as an athlete, as a coach, as an administrator, now as a commissioner, helped drive this business model that truly puts mm -hmm. the men's and women's tournament on, on equal footing? Wow, you know, I think, um, I think my own experiences have allowed me to think big for the same experiences or better that I want student athletes to have. You know, the brand is strong, the institutions are strong, and there's a lot of opportunity for exposure for everyone. Um, this is a place where if you came to the tournament, um, you'll wanna come back over, over and over and over and over and over again. That's just the community that, it's, that it is. Um, and it's fun, it's not just about one institution, it's about every institution in the conference. Um, this is where it's a homecoming um, but there's great opportunities for these students to establish themselves as a CIAA for life. Like I'm a CIAA for life. I might have worked in everywhere places. And I said, when I leave as a commissioner, I'm going to get my tickets right there on the floor. Um, but it's definitely an opportunity to engage not just the CIAA community. Now that we're in Baltimore, uh, we engage the Baltimore community. They become our family. We become their family. And how we bring the sport, we bring the sport but to build a bigger and better community. And that's what I love about working for this conference is that yes, we leave, we left $600 million in the state of North Carolina in the city of Charlotte of economic impact. But this stage in Baltimore will continue to grow. And it's a chance for us to do, again, gender equity. To me, we should have been doing it anyways, but to have 22 games, um, 24 teams and to have us all on ESPN last year and then to have women um, commentate the first two days of our games and throughout the championship like I have goosebumps saying it like and women of color you know to give them opportunity a couple of them are graduates of CIAA that work for the industry and to ask them to come home and tell the stories this is where storytelling takes place and CIAA, the basketball tournament is our main stage, but 365 days a year, we get to tell incredible stories about people who uh, help me get to where I am and who are helping others go to where they want to go. I feel like when George Floyd died, that opened the floodgates. Mm -hmm. And 
I think even backtracking to the death of Trayvon Martin in Florida, because I think, I, I feel like college athletes take their lead from the pro athletes. And, and I'll never forget the day that it was LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris mm -hmm. Bosch posting something on Instagram with hoods on. And it was basically enough is enough. And when athletes of that stature decide that they want to use their voice for change, especially in the social justice space, it says to college athletes, hey, we can do this too. It's a different way to showcase our leadership and take a stand. Specific to female athletes in this space, what are you seeing that puts a smile on your face that makes you swell up with pride knowing that you as the commissioner of the CIAA are providing this opportunity for student athletes to have a voice, especially the female student athletes? Yeah, you know what? Um, it's, a, it's a place for me too. Like I have voice. I have a sense of belonging as a black woman a, in an HBCU culture that has always been the grounding and foundation of advocacy and civil rights. I mean, all of our institutions, whether you the first HBCU in the South, Shaw, or in the North, Lincoln, or in Maryland, Bowie State, um, there is a place to, you can come and nobody's gonna judge you or question whether you can kneel or whether you can advocate um, how we vote. Um, we make access for our students and we teach them that. We teach them how to share their voice and to advocate for themselves and their communities. Um, and that's been the grounding for HBCs prior to George Floyd. It has always been that way for us. Um, how do you teach them? I think that's a really valuable yeah. lesson that our audience can take away. Yeah, you know, and my presidents, we've had this conversation. When I went to Hampton, first of all, you had to read all these historical books of the founding of the institution. You had to read the books of, you know, all these historic individuals who have made impact, not just on our campus, but you know, across all campuses. So not just Martin Luther King and all that, like everybody, like you just read, that's part of understanding and valuing your history um, so that you know how, so you understand, everybody should understand the history, not just the history that we learned in high school, which we didn't learn black history in high school, but you actually learned black history on your campuses and how that impacted um, the country and the value of your HBCU um, not just to the institution, but the region and the impact that it has economically, graduation, you name it, men and women. That's a sense of pride all by itself because sometimes you didn't know. You didn't know, um, you know, some of these historic individuals that were on your campus um, and that made impact. And so for us, you, day one, you walk on with a sense of pride. You see it on your campuses and the presidents see that that's important in value as well on the campuses. So it's an automatic learn. You just pick it up. I lived in Colorado, right? I said my family was from Mississippi, but there was so much that I didn't know about my history until I came to Hampton. And I think many of us can say that if you didn't grow up in a civil rights home or you didn't grow up understanding that, but when you get on an HBCU campus, it just comes to you. Whether you're white or black, you just learn historically how to value the importance of the history across your institution, but also across the world. Well, our time is almost coming to a close, but there are a couple of things that I, I think you'd be able to add wonderful perspective to. One is 
about being a multi-sport athlete. When you and I were growing up, we were playing every sport every. under the sun. It blows my mind that you were not only able to play basketball at Hampton, but play basketball and volleyball and be all conference and win a national championship. But, but now we're in this situation where there's this push toward specialization. If a mom or dad comes up to you and says, commissioner, my daughter is playing multiple sports. We're thinking about narrowing down to one. What advice could you give us? Oh what my goodness. You tell them? It's sort of the conversation I had with my daughter when she was playing. And I, I just said, you know, take advantage of all of it. And it is specialized. You know, a lot of our kids want to get scholarships. And if you don't specialize, it's very hard to get seen in volleyball or basketball or soccer or gymnastics. And if you want to be really good, you've got to commit to that. If you're chasing after that scholarship or you want to go to the Olympics, I get all of that. But like for my daughter, you know, I'm like, just play and love whatever it is that you're playing. I got you. I'm not going to push her to play one sport or the other. Um, my dad reminded me the other day, sometimes we just got to let kids be kids and allow them to choose for themselves. I think there's some pressure from parents. I have friends, you know, they see the potential and our kids don't know when to stop and there's no limit to stopping. They keep going. They want to be in every tournament. They want to play, play, play. I think as an adult, we have to say, you know what, let's just go to the playground and get on the swings, you know, um, and allow them to be kids. But I get it. It's very competitive. It's hard. Sometimes I'm disappointed in youth sports because we've, we've made it so that it's so difficult for kids just to want to do more than just one thing. And if I hadn't got a chance to do all of it, I don't know if I would be here, honestly. And so I would just encourage them to you know, the mental health and the stresses of trying to do it all um, just lingers into college. And I'm glad that there wasn't pressure for me to have to pick anything or do all, just enjoy. But my mom also created balance for me. And so that has helped me even on my mental health. Not that I didn't have, you know, issues because we all do with the pressures of winning and losing and being good. Um, but it was a better balance. And I think we have to work on giving these young people a better balance and allowing them to be kids, but also not pressuring them to feel like if they don't, um, they will not, or they can't. Who do you think Jackie McWilliams would be without her student athlete experience? I wouldn't be here. I would, I, I always say, and I say this to student athletes, I just said it this summer, like ath athletics, um, being in sports saved my life. Um, yeah. It a sense of confidence for me when I didn't have it at home. Um, I could, it created family when sometimes I felt like I didn't, and not that my, I didn't have family, um, but to be connected to my family, that's what the sisterhood of sports does for you. As someone who holds the highest position in all of collegiate sports with the power to shape lives, what about the way you lead Jackie do you hope girls and women coming up behind you will see and embrace and take with them as they move into their adult years? You know, we've still got so much work to do, um, but I do think it takes one man, one woman leader at a time to help us get there. And I just hope that, you know, the way that college sports is going, that we don't lose the innocence 
and some of it I felt like we've lost it. But I do have hope when I see, you know, a championship, a Final Four women's game, or a Division Two game, or D three game, um, or just a young girl playing at five that likes to play and kick a ball for soccer. I do have hope that the, that won't stop. Um, and I just pray that as leaders and administrators that we don't take the innocence away, um, that young girls don't wanna play anymore. The pressure's too much, the opportunities, they're there, but to get in it just seems too much to bear. And that's not the intent of sport. Sport is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to you know, give you joy for winning and cry when you lose, but create that community of excellence. And I, I hope that I demonstrate that as a leader of this conference that, yeah, we want to win and we want to win championships, but we want to create leaders um, in a group of excellent students who will be way beyond the game, um, but will use the game um, for the advantage of making a difference in their communities. Jackie McWilliams, thank you for being an inspiration, a Hall of Famer in high school, a Hall of Famer as <laughs> player, a Hall of Famer at Virginia Union as somebody who moved Title IX forward and commissioner of the Central Intercollegiate Athletics Association. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you for joining us for our second episode of Title IX College Sports Conversations. Be sure to check this out on social and other episodes on the NCAA's YouTube channel. We'll see you again real soon.